Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest is a former state and federal prosecutor with extensive experience leading and managing criminal trials and appeals. As a state prosecutor in New Jersey and a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig directed major criminal cases against street gangs, drug trafficking organizations, illegal firearms traffickers, corrupt public officials, child predators, and white-collar criminals. Ellie also serves as a Rutgers University scholar, is a CNN legal analyst, and is featured on Cross-Exam. Ellie Honig, welcome back to Words Matter. Thank you for having me. Really glad to be back with you. So last week, the House Intelligence Committee wrapped two weeks of public impeachment hearings. We heard from 12 witnesses in more than 40 hours of televised testimony. Today, we're going to talk about what happened, what it means, and what happens next. First, Ellie, we'll break down some of the individual witnesses and their testimony in a minute, but let's get to the 30,000-foot view to jump off. What was the case presented over the last two weeks? And from your experience as a former federal prosecutor, how effective was it? So I naturally approach this from a prosecutorial standpoint and looking at it as if this was a criminal case. I know it's not. I know it's political. There's a whole separate dimension there. But just if this was a criminal case in court and Donald Trump was on trial for, let's say, bribery, this would be a very strong case, not an impenetrable case, not a lay down your hand and it's over case, but a strong case, a case I would have felt confident charging and trying. And if I had just put on the case that the House Democrats put on and we were now sitting here waiting for the jury, I'd feel pretty good. I'd feel moderately optimistic. I'd I'd be expecting a conviction to come back. I think they put on a really strong stable of witnesses. And as it turned out, in a sense, the greatest strength was also the greatest weakness of these witnesses. The greatest strength is you really had this parade, with the exception maybe of Gordon Sondland, of incredibly well-qualified, really unimpeachable, the other kind of impeaching, the impeaching the credibility, career public servants and military heroes who just told it straight down the middle. And the portrait that emerges when you put all their testimony together and you combine it with the July 25th call and you combine it with the texts and the other things that Mick Mulvaney and Rudy Giuliani have said publicly, it's it's almost to me an unmistakable conclusion that the president used foreign aid and the promise of a White House visit in order to extract these politically charged investigations from Ukraine. So, Ellie, it seems to me that as a non-lawyer, as more of a communications person, the Democrats did a great job in telling a story from beginning to end and that the witnesses were not randomly put together. They each were a building block for the next witness. So let's talk about two weeks ago, the the first three. Yeah. It seems like a long time ago. But why Bill Taylor, George Kent, and Marie Ivanovich, from a prosecutor's point of view, why were they first and what foundation did they lay? Yeah, I saw exactly what they were doing there. So you want to start strong. You don't necessarily bring your most controversial witness, your most highly charged witness. You just want a good foundation in place. And so the three of them, Taylor, Kent, and Yovanovitch, sort of, I think, established beyond any doubt the following. This withholding of USAID was dangerous to Ukraine. It was contrary to the vast consensus of what is in our best national interests. It was done sort of without explanation and without any rational reason. 
And they were able to also start providing some groundwork for the idea of based on what they observed, based on what they knew, not firsthand, but based on being part of the mix, there was an exchange here. And by the way, that to me is the logical conclusion, but they also provided some support for that. And then Marie Yovanovitch, I thought, was such an interesting witness because there was a little bit of a question of why are you here? The Republicans were were kind of examining her along the lines of like, why do you matter? What do you know? You don't know anything. The thing is, her removal was a necessary precondition to all of this happening. And it set in because you could see this career diplomat was an anti-corruption crusader. She took on the two corrupt Ukrainian prosecutors, both of whom happened to, for some reason, have retained Rudy Giuliani to represent them. One tried to get a visa. And I think Rudy Giuliani was savvy enough to say, she's got to go. She's never going to stand for this, for what I have in mind. And so I need to poison the well, get her out of here, and then I can do my thing. And that's exactly what happened. And I think by calling her, you set the stage for what was to come. So all the witnesses had been deposed and the transcripts had been released. There were only a couple of surprises. Right. And we'll come to Gordon Sondland later <laughs> because his testimony was in three different places and everyone wondered where he was going to land. It was malleable. Yeah, it, it was malleable. <laughs> That's a good word. But Ambassador Taylor opened with what was a bombshell? Yeah. I mean, look, this is what happens when, when you keep an investigation open. And we used to say when we were prosecutors, the investigation doesn't end until that jury verdict comes in. I mean, I've had that experience of being in the middle of trial and finding something going, oh, my goodness, this changes everything. That's like Perry Mason, right? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Perry Mason in a, in a Ukrainian restaurant yeah. with foul language <laughs> involved. So, yeah, I mean, Bill Taylor announced during his testimony that he'd been told by his former staffer, who turned out to be this guy, David Holmes, about the famous or infamous Ukraine restaurant conversation. And then the question was, is this is this for real? Is this going to bear out? And then we heard from Dave Holmes, was the last witness we heard from, and he gave chapter and verse. And even Gordon Sondland confirmed almost every detail except the whole Biden thing. But Sondland, and we'll get to him, but Sondland's lying about that Biden barisma thing. I'm pretty confident of that. So before Katie takes you through last week's uh, witnesses, I want to ask you a different question. From your experience as a prosecutor, rate Adam Schiff's performance and rate Devin Nunes' performance. Oh, boy. Okay. Adam Schiff is a former federal prosecutor. He was excellent. I would give him a a seven. I think he was effective. I don't think he was. The reason I don't give him higher is because he was very straightforward, very bland. Un- until the very end, until he gave his closing, closing, when he when he got f- emotional, fired up, I think what he did was very effective if you were in a strictly clinical setting. But he's not in a clinical setting. That's a setting. seven on the SDNY scale, I guess. Yeah, we're, yeah. T- we're tough graders. Yeah, you got to leave graders. some room up tough top. Tough graders. Yeah, 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 exactly. We don't give, we don't give nines and tens that easily. So I thought he was really effective in terms of substance. I thought his style was, was effective, dry, and that's okay. But you need to appeal to not just 12 sort of rational, independent jurors in a box, but to all of the American public and to Congress. And it was a little dry on that note. Do you think he was trying to draw a contrast with the tinfoil hat gentleman sitting next to him? I do. I thought he did a great job of that. He didn't even acknowledge Devin Nunez's existence. Nunez would go on this rant, and Adam Schiff said every single time, he said, thank the gentleman. Thank the gentleman. It was very effective. It was an effective ignoring. So uh, Nunez, I'm not trying to just be sort of glib here, but he gets a, a one. He was atrocious. He had no set theme. He had, sort of had this set opening remarks that he gave over and over, regardless of the witness, regardless of the twists and turns in the case. At one point, I tweeted to Preet Bharara, my old boss, and I said, what would you have done if, if he sent you this 
opening or this cross-exam for this witness. And somebody else jumped in and said, from Southern District, and said, Preet would have rejected it and said, I think you attached the cross-exam from a different trial. Can you send me the right attachment? I mean, I didn't know what planet the guy was on. He espoused wild conspiracy theories. I don't remember him scoring a point. I don't remember him asking a question where I went, hmm, okay, that, that's a point. And some Republicans did score points. But I don't remember Nunez doing anything effective. Well, let me, before we get to witnesses, let's stay on the inquisitors. Rate your friend Dan Goldman yeah. and then rate Steve Kester. So disclaimer, Dan's a per- Goldman's a personal friend of mine, colleague at Southern District. We did cases together. We did a big trial together. But Dan was outstanding. I mean, there's just, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be impartial. But even through any lens, he was outstanding. He was sharp. He was effective. And look, 45 minutes is an eternity as these congressional hearings go. But it's nothing as a sort of examination of a witness goes. And Dan figured out what the most important points were. He got to them in a clear and concise way. He was very disciplined in that he didn't showboat. There were opportunities to go to showboat or ask snide questions or ask conclusory questions. He didn't do that because I'll tell you exactly what he was doing. This is the Southern District playbook. He was gathering his facts. And what we always say is save it for closing. Okay, if you get a really good fact, don't dance on it because then you give the witness a chance to pull it back or to qualify it or whatever. You will have your chance to put it out there, put it on a slide, point at it argue about it in closing. And I do think we will see a moment within the next couple of weeks where Adam Schiff will present his findings in a formal fashion, not just in written fashion, but I think somewhere in the well of, of the committee room. Uh, so I think I think Dan was just outstanding. Now, Mr. Castor? Uh, again, we'll st- stick on the scale. I think he was a four or five. He seemed not fully prepared, which, which surprised me. He didn't seem to know where he was going. He cast it about a bit. I didn't think his demeanor was as strong as Dan's. I think he was a little bit snide at times, but he also didn't have as much to work with. I do think he should have picked two or three solid themes and hit them and stuck with them. Instead, he tried to hit eight or nine different talking points, including some of these conspiracy things. Well, particularly with David Holmes and Dr. Hill, he seemed to be making the Democrats' case uh, for a while. Yeah, that happened as well. Yeah, yeah. A couple witnesses sort of went the wrong way on him. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so circling back to we had the the first week with the three career ambassadors and then next up was Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and then National Security Aide to the Vice President Jennifer Williams. So Ellie, what did their testimony add to the story and to the fact gathering and to the overall impeachment case? So the first thing is these two people both heard the July 25th call as it happened. And these are two people I think are, are again, entirely credible and sort of admirable public servants. And they both shared their reactions, which was the reaction of virtually everybody on the call, which is, whoa, something is very wrong here. Vinman also put some pressure on Sondland and others to, to come clean because Vinman knew that Sondland had offered a quid pro quo directly to the Ukrainians. And I think that's a large part of what led Sondland to, to go back and supplement, in air quotes, his testimony and say, oh, yes, now I do remember that I, I made this uh, offer to the Ukrainians. And Jennifer Williams, the other interesting thing, thing that she did, and th- this is a plot line that may never be fully developed, but she started to give us some indication of one of the mystery men here, Mike Pence, and what his involvement was. I think his involvement boils down to sort of silent participant slash knowing but non-acting participant. He kind of just, there was there was a scene where uh, one of so the- wit- Some might say that about his entire vice president. Yeah, I mean, right. It's, it's very consistent with his character. He's kind of there. He kind of sees that something not great, not super ethical is happening and he kind of shrugs his shoulders and moves along. So I don't know that ultimately he's in the soup directly 
or in any danger of impeachment or, or having been judged to have done anything terribly wrong. But I don't think he will come out of this as a profile in courage either. So after that, on Wednesday, there was the witness that everyone had been waiting for. That was the ambassador to the EU and Trump mega donor Gordon Sondland. And Ellie, I have several questions <laughs> about Sondland. Um, first, from your perspective as a prosecutor, when you put a witness like Sondland on the stand and knowing his story has changed, how does he have any credibility whatsoever? Yeah, so Gordon Sondland was a real welcome to the real world moment for me as a prosecutor, because up to that point, the whole world had seen this parade of military heroes and diplomats and admirable people. Now you get a guy who's who's slimy, who's got a real credibility problem, who's not likable, who doesn't present well. In real criminal practice, the vast majority of your trials rise and fall on shady characters, on cooperating witnesses, on people who are part of the criminality themselves, on people who've changed their story. And so Sondland to me was a Okay, we've all dealt with cases that rise and fall. I mean, imagine doing a trial where a jury's going to come back and say guilty or not guilty, and it all turns on do they believe Sondland. Now, the problem with Sondland is it seems clear to me, and I think clear to everybody, that he lied to some extent in his initial deposition testimony. The thing is, though, all of his lies, all of his fibs, big and small, all go the same direction. It's like a broken cash register that only shortchanges you. All of his lies, all of his fibs favored Donald Trump and favored himself. And so I think. Ultimately, Democrats' pitch on him has to be, did the guy lie initially? Yes, he did. He lied in a way to minimize for himself and Donald Trump. Even if you accept that minimized testimony, it's very damaging. Now, eventually, he came clean or cleaner, and that's even more devastating. So pick your poison. Either way, it's really bad for Donald Trump. And do you think it was Roger Stone and the verdict that changed his tune? Uh, That could have been a reminder. The timing there was interesting and convenient. I think he got a good lawyer at the end, too. It was interesting to see how he tried to walk back certain things and come up with excuses. I mean, what I thought was a really nifty piece of lawyering was when he came back to testify, there were all these significant things that he had omitted, including this July 26 call from the restaurant. How on earth do you forget that? And you know what he said? Well... I blame the State Department because they're holding on to my documents. And if I was able to review my documents, I would have been able to refresh my memory. Now, first of all, bull. I mean, who believes that? But it's a perfect cover. You blame the State Department for something they deserve blame for, rightly, right? They shouldn't be holding on to these documents. And it gets them out of perjury because who, who can say, no, you didn't really forget that. How could you have forgotten that? I think a lot of lawyers looked at that and tipped our hats and went, well, well done to yeah. who's representing Gordon Sondland. <laughs> Sounds like a good lawyer. One of the things I noticed was Sondland's opening statement was very strong, yeah. very clear. There was a quid pro quo. Everybody knew about this. This was the government's policy. He got soft in questioning because it seemed to me he just wanted to please whoever was questioning him. As a prosecutor, how do you handle sort of the set pieces versus when someone is freestyling? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, the Republicans, I give them credit there. They chipped away at what initially appeared to be a devastating opening statement. If he just walked out after his opening statement, we would all go, oh, my goodness. I mean, people were saying, commenters were saying, this is the John Dean moment. And I honestly sort of shared that impression after the opening statement. But the Republicans chipped away. And what you would do if you were a prosecutor, you would have opportunity to sit with this guy and prep with him. And he would, if he made a broad statement like he made an opening, this was a quid pro quo and everybody knew it or and everybody was in the loop, I would say, okay, but let's break that down. Let me see what your basis is for that. How do you know it? Are you just drawing a reasonable, logical inference? Or do you know it because you discussed it with somebody? You saw it. You read it. Like You need to make sure that the basis, the foundation for that conclusion is solid. And here it turned out it was not as solid as he made it sound like 
in the beginning. Now, it's still it's still damaging. And I think we're in a non-rules of evidence world here. And I think it's still fair game for him to say, look, just based on everything I knew, I was in the middle of this. It was clear to me everybody knew. I think that's fair ground. But it's not quite the same as I know because I sat down with key players, Donald Trump being the most key player who told me this was a quid pro quo. So before Katie gets to what I think was the star witness of the entire week, Dr. Hill, let me ask a little bit about Volcker's testimony, Morrison's testimony, and Sondland's testimony. Is there anyone who was watching those hearings who believed them when they said (laughs) they didn't understand the difference between Burisma and Biden? And how do you deal with witnesses who are likely telling the truth on most other things, but are telling one big lie to cover their ass on on something. Yeah, that is a very common phenomenon. I've seen it a lot of times where a witness is willing to give up a lot, but there's one fact, whether it's something they don't want to give up because of a personal reason. A lot of times people will lie because they want to cover one specific person, maybe a spouse, a parent, someone else they really don't want to get in trouble. Why that particular lie, I think, is because it's so damning, because it directly ties them and Donald Trump to an investigation of Joe Biden, an obvious political opponent. Now, look, you're not going to get them to suddenly recant and go, you're, you're right. I, of course I knew Burisma and Biden were the same thing. All you can do is chip away at it through common sense. You introduce to the jury that it was already out there in the media. Rudy was already talking about it routinely in national media. A quick Google search, one of the witnesses, I think yeah, it was Morrison, Morrison said yeah. he searched it. And I mean, obviously that's what you would do. And also other witnesses talked about how in their conversations with these guys, they understood. They knew what Burisma was. They knew it was Biden. And then you just have to argue to a jury, common sense. They're, they're hiding that. Fact. But as I was watching that, it seemed to me, at least two of them, maybe three of them, very much wanted to find some plausible explanation for, one, why they didn't know, and two, why they didn't talk about it in their deposition. Yeah, they were... <laughs> They were spinning in circles there. I mean, the things that were omitted to me are also are, are very important as well. That being one, the July 26 uh, conversation. I mean, things that are omitted can be really damning. There is such thing as perjury sort of by material omission. It's harder to prove, but there was definitely some of that going on. And I put Volcker and Sondland in particular in the trying to have it both ways, trying to be seen across the country as people who stepped forward and did the right thing and testified and and told the truth, but but also not alienate. Trump and the Republican establishment more than necessary. I actually want to uh, circle back to Marie Yovanovitch before we get to Dr. Hill and her testimony, because, Ellie, I've been wanting to ask you this in particular. While she was testifying, President Trump was tweeting about her in real time, and Congressman Schiff spoke about how that was real-time witness intimidation based on his Twitter attack against her while she was testifying. And everybody leapt to the conclusion, absolutely, that's witness tampering, criminal charge, no question. Can you walk us through, either by an example from your past or, or just how you would do it now, how does that meet 18 U.S.C. 1512? How is that witness tampering and what can happen with it? Sure. So I think this could be witness tampering or witness retaliation. I think this is a first for me. I don't think I've ever seen the act of tampering or retaliation happen during, actually during the testimony. And because this happened during, it could be either one. So the witness tampering statute says if you take action intended to influence, prevent, or delay 
someone's testimony, that's witness tampering. Now, she's already in the process, but you could say he's trying to influence by, by frightening her. Look, if someone's scared or scared of the consequences or scared of further consequences, maybe they'll tone down what they have to say. And it also could be retaliation. It could be the retaliation statute, which is the next one, section 1513, says if you take any harmful action intended to essentially retaliate against anyone for testimony— that's a crime, too. And now she was an hour or so into her testimony at that point. So you could argue both. And there was a Republican argument of how could it be witness tampering? She's already testifying. She finished testifying. That's not the point. So it comes down to what was the intent behind the tweet. And to me, I, I look at it this way. First of all, look at the timing. I mean, it's during her testimony when the whole world was watching. This isn't just your normal trial testimony with maybe a courtroom full of onlookers. This is tens of millions of people watching. I viewed it as a personal attack on her and also, he's got a pattern of this. Look at the Mueller report. I mean, he, he tried to intimidate virtually every witness, Manafort, Cohen, McGahn, even Jeff Sessions. I mean, he, he's either attacked everybody or tried to stop them from taking the stand or tried to subtly influence their testimony. So I think there's a pretty strong argument there that it would be witness tampering. And look, I, I did cases, witness tampering can be dramatic or it can be subtle. I, I did a case where we had a defendant who told his girlfriend, I need you out of town for the next two weeks when his trial was coming up. And she tried to take off, but we found her and she testified. That ended up being a conviction for witness tampering. That may be actually more straightforward than this one. But I've also done cases where we've charged people with witness tampering. We had one witness who, who got tapped on the shoulder when he was in a deli. And the person said, I heard you got subpoenaed. And he said, yeah. And the person said, OK, like you're going to do the right thing. Now, that's ambiguous, but we argued, and he ended up pleading guilty, we argued that it was a, that it was a crime. So... Witness tampering can be big and dramatic, or it could be quick and subtle. And here, I think a tweet to 60 million people is on the big and dramatic side. Did you ever think the president of the United States would engage in this sort of behavior? No. This is, this is crazy. Think of any of the last 10 presidents. Can you imagine any of them doing this? Sending out Twitter didn't exist for some of them. But getting behind a microphone and attacking a congressional witness during her testimony, it's, it's one of those you have to reset moments and, and just remember how nuts this is. All right. So let's get to, as Joe put it, the star witness, Dr. Fiona Hill. And in some ways, the most formidable witness for House Republicans in several ways. So formidable that the questioning by ranking member Nunez and uh, minority counsel Steve Castor was arguably one of the worst moments for House Republicans and seemed to backfire. So they changed tactics. And when it came time for Republican members, five minutes, each round of questions, they used their time to make speeches without asking her any questions, which also backfired when Chairman Schiff allowed the witness to respond to their remarks. So, Ellie, what's the significance of Dr. Hill's testimony in the broader story? And what did she add to the impeachment case? Well, the, the most important thing she said was domestic political errand. I mean, what a brilliant phraseology. And I think all this debate, confusion, argument about whether this whole effort towards Ukraine was legitimate or aimed towards corruption busting or another popular line of defense from the Republicans was, oh, he's not big on foreign aid or other countries aren't paying their fair share. She just slaughtered that with those three words. And she was crystal clear. And she said this was a domestic political error. And she said there was two tracks. I'm paraphrasing her, not nearly as articulate as she was, but she said there was the legitimate foreign policy track and this was not that. This yeah. was a domestic political error. I mean, errand. she said they were doing domestic political errand. We were doing the foreign policy of the United States yep. of America. It was so brilliantly phrased. And look, it doesn't hurt that she's an incredibly compelling personality. I mean, credibility, just forget about it if you think you're going to dent her at all. 
professional, sharp, but courteous. I mean, she is a dream witness for a pro- her and Bill Taylor. There was a reason they were the bookends because y- you have to start rock solid and end rock solid. When you're a prosecutor, you do what's called an order of proof. You you just script out here's the order we're going to call the witnesses and here's the order we're going to introduce the exhibits and they are the obvious lead off and clean up hitters. So one of the things that I found most compelling about Dr. Hill is she did many things, but two of them I want to focus on. One is one you've already mentioned, which was there was some confusion before she testified about whether Sondland's version that we were all working together or everybody else's version of we were working on separate tracks and we really didn't know what Rudy was doing. How important was it that she settled that argument? Because I think she did. The second thing that I'd love your thoughts on is she absolutely destroyed Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan's number one talking point that it was Ukraine that meddled in the 2016 election and then took it a step further, which I thought was really powerful, which was to challenge the Republicans on the committee to say that if you keep doing this, you are using Russian talking points. You are doing the work of of the Russians. Talk about that. So the latter point was so important, I think, just to the broader conversation that we're having. I think it's so important that she just essentially said, look, there is such thing as fact and there is such thing as fiction. And this whole notion that it was Ukraine, not Russia, is fiction, period. And she would know better than anybody else. It didn't stop Donald Trump after her testimony from going right back to his Ukraine theory. He went on Fox News and went right back to CrowdStrike. And they even asked him, how do you how do you know that? Like, skeptically, if you've seen this clip, and Trump just says, it's what people are saying. I mean, he's right back to the conspiracy theory. But I think to those who are still persuadable, I think Fiona Hill put that issue absolutely to rest. It's also relevant to the story here because that fiction that Ukraine hacked the election or interfered with the 2016 election was the pretext that Rudy used to rile up Donald Trump to get rid of Marie Yovanovitch, which, as I said, was sort of the original sin of this whole story. If you were starting this and telling this chronologically, I think that would be chapter one. We got to get rid of the anti-corruption person. Here's the ruse we use. We say that she's aligned with Ukraine. One of the things that I was thinking during this thing is the, the president's hostility toward Ukraine did not start with Rudy. Right. It started with Paul Manafort, right, right, uh, who yep. represented pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine yep. who were aligned with Putin. The second influence on Trump was Vladimir Putin. Right. And I think Rudy saw an opportunity to go make some money over there and be his boy. Yeah. Um, taking your prosecutor hat off for just a second, how big a deal is it that we've got a president who has given us every indication that Russia is now our strategic ally and not Ukraine. I'll use the broken cash register analogy again. It's interesting how every single move Donald Trump makes would be what Russia would like to see happen, up to and including raking Ukraine over the coals and making them beg for their security assistance. So everything he does seems to come out that way for some reason or another. And I think just as big a deal is just this stubborn denial of reality, just this a factual, non-factual, whatever I want to be the case, I'm going to insist on it. I'm going to insist on it over and over, louder and louder, and it will take hold eventually. Okay. Put your prosecutor hat back on. I want to ask you about the challenge of being a prosecutor when most of the fact witnesses have found a way not to appear in your courtroom. Yeah. This is the equivalent of Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Rick Perry, Mick Mulvaney, and the head of OMB, Mr. Vogt, taking the fifth. 
Yeah, and and I will add something else that because of the time pressure here, there's no realistic way that Democrats could have compelled those guys to testify. I'm confident that if they had unlimited time, as you often do in a criminal case, they could have gone to court and they could have compelled these people. I'm fairly confident. I just think a judge would uphold their subpoenas. But these guys know and the administration knows there's no way courts can get it done in time. The time frame here is very limited. And I think what the House Democrats did this week in some ways was a blessing, in some ways was a curse put on them in that they didn't have access to these sort of firsthand inner circle witnesses. But I think they did a really good job with that second ring of witnesses. So I think Democrats looked at their witness list and said, we're going to do this with Taylor Ivanovich, Fiona Hill, and maybe we don't have that person. They do have indications of what Trump said. Maybe we don't have that person who sat down with Trump one-on-one like Bolton did, or like I'm sure Mulvaney did and said, what's up, boss, who could say, Trump looked at me and said, yeah, I'm making this up, but um, we're not releasing the aid until they give us the investigations. But the other thing let's keep in mind here is the transcript. I mean, the fact that they started, the House Democrats started with that July 25th transcript is, it's exhibit A and B and C and D in your trial testimony. I mean, you could convict someone, I think, at trial based solely on that. And I think it's interesting the way that the whole scenario with the transcript played out timing-wise, because the transcript was really the first thing we saw. It was released back in September. And when it came out, my reaction, I think a lot of people's reaction was, oh my God, I can't believe how clear this is. But imagine if things happened sort of in reverse. Imagine if there was this whistleblower complaint, and then we started to hear from these witnesses, and we heard from Taylor and Kent and Sondland, and they were all saying, well, we were involved in this, and all indications were the president was holding up aid and a White House visit, and he wanted investigations of these two things. And there would be there would have been plenty of debate about whether he did or didn't, and then the transcript dropped. Let's say the transcript dropped today. Everyone, I think, would go, oh my God, it's all correct, and it's exactly the worst-case scenario that the witnesses painted. But human nature being what it is, we almost take that transcript for granted. It's almost when you're talking about these witnesses and the merits of the case, you have to sometimes consciously remind yourself, we have the president's own words. They are direct. They are clear. Well, the flip side of that is that there were a lot of Republicans saying the transcript, the president saying it was perfect. Republicans saying he wasn't (laughs) offering anything there. And then day after day, we found out that he was. It strikes me not having a legal degree that this was, in a criminal case, this is almost like a confession that's been recanted. Yeah. If you had this tape in a criminal case, it would be a guilty plea case. There's no way any sane defendant would go to trial. It's over. It's not a tape because we don't have the audio. But this transcript, which the White House itself produced, is a game ender. And to me, the two most audacious positions throughout this whole thing are, number one, perfect call. First of all, I don't even know what that means. What's a perfect call? Like It's such a ridiculous a phrase. The second one is this notion that Donald Trump is some kind of international corruption buster, which they they hung on to and they tried to do a little bit of cross-examination with, yet nobody throughout this entire scenario was ever able to point to a single country, a single case, a single anything other than Biden slash Burisma and 2016 with the server that Donald Trump ever even glanced at. They even asked him at one point early on, the media, someone in the media asked him, what other cases have you done? And he said, well, I'll have to look. Well, I mean, if that was the case, I think we'd be holding up Israeli aid right now. But that's, yeah, that's, right. Yeah. I think he has a problem with Netanyahu. Yeah. What's uh, Rudy Giuliani's um, culpability here? Boy, he, we know he's under investigation by the Southern District. We don't know exactly what for. We know he had a lot of comings and goings and dealings with Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who are indicted. And by the way, I can't, I can't even figure out who is paying who out of that group. I think they were just passing bad checks back and forth or something. 
I actually think Rudy has criminal exposure just based on his dealings with Ukraine. I mean, let's put aside bribery and extortion here. It is a crime to solicit a thing of value for an election, for a campaign from a foreign national. And the first time I ever saw an article about this, the New York Times, I think, wrote about this back in April or May, that Rudy was on this campaign to get the Ukrainian prosecutor to investigate Biden. And and Rudy said it on Chris Cuomo's show right out loud. And I just kept thinking to myself, he's essentially admitting to a crime. He's relying on this legal conclusion that Bill Barr has drawn that I disagree with, that opposition research and initiating an investigation of your campaign opponent is not a thing of value. Now, we don't have a decisive answer from any court there, but oh my goodness, I mean, logic and common sense, to to use the example that that we've used before, Joe. What if Donald Trump or Rudy Giuliani asked Ukraine for a used van? He said, I'd like you to give me that used van so I can drive around lawn signs. No question that's a thing of value. And you don't have to be able to put a Kelly Blue Book price on on something in order for it to be a thing of value. Better than opposition research, the appearance of a criminal investigation, who could put a dollar figure on it? Seven figures. It's enormously valuable. So Ultimately, I think uh, Rudy could face charges from an aggressive prosecutor on that basis. So before we get to what happens next, I'm going to put you on the spot here. We've been going back and forth between pretending this was a criminal case. Give me your two-minute closing argument to the jury. Okay. For for which side? (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't you start with uh, the prosecution? Okay. Three things are not in dispute here. Number one, foreign aid was held up to Ukraine. There's no question about that. And I would, I guess 1A would be, and the promise of a White House visit was dangled. Number two, Donald Trump wanted investigations of his political opponents. You heard that out of Donald Trump's own mouth on the tapes. You heard that from Dave Holmes. You heard that from Gordon Sondland. Number three, those two things were connected to one another. One and two were connected. Were they a coincidence? There's zero evidence of that. Every bit of logic, common sense, and the witness testimony tells you that they were connected, that he was holding up the foreign aid, that he was dangling the White House visit in return for the investigation. You know it's a good closing when he starts out with three things. Three things. So I'll, I'll do the— I'll That's do, an SDNY I'll, tactic. I'll do the closing, and then you can, you can rebut it. Yeah. Uh, don't listen to anything the prosecutor just said. Just listen to two things. Aid was delivered— and there was no investigation. Right. Counselor, it's all yours. And both of those things happened or were sidetracked after they were caught, basically. That's the response. Yeah. All right. Well, I, Kate, thought you were gonna yeah. Go with, I thought you were going to go with uh, for the defense. But Donald Trump yelled, I want nothing. Yeah, and he yelled I, it a lot of times yeah. and loud. So I've just proved why I'm not a lawyer. So I'm going to let Katie take over because <laughs> she is a lawyer. So I actually want to talk about the next step in the political process here, though. So for the House Intelligence Committee, the next step is to write up a report and then submit it to the Judiciary Committee and then for the Judiciary Committee to decide which, if any, articles of impeachment to actually draft. So, Ellie, you've drafted more than a few indictments as a prosecutor. Explain the similarities and the differences of an impeachment proceeding here in this respect. So I would look at the task that they have right now of writing up their their findings and then writing up articles of impeachment as almost exactly the same thing as writing up a pros memo, a prosecution memo, and drafting an indictment. And the big question there is, do you go kitchen sink or do you go thin to win, as we used to say at the Southern District? There are some prosecutors out there, and I don't agree with this approach, that say, tack on as many charges as you can, 
give yourself as many ways to win as possible, right? You'll read about these indictments from other offices of, oh, they returned a a 138-count indictment, and you're supposed to go, ooh, they must have a lot of evidence. The Southern District way is really quite the opposite. Lead with your strongest charges. Keep it as streamlined and digestible as you possibly can for the jury, whether it's the Senate or, or a jury of 12 men and women. Um, and put your strongest charges out there. And if you have weaker charges, leave them out. They're not going to help you. They're not going to bolster you. So I, I definitely am a proponent of the keep it thin, keep it simple point of view. And I think that's where they'll come out on these articles of impeachment. But do they, in not even recognizing the Mueller report and Russia, are they sending the signal that he was exonerated? With the Russia? Well, yeah. So that's such an interesting dilemma that they have. Because on the one hand, if you do not include anything in articles of impeachment relating to anything to do with Russia or Mueller. That is the message, I think. It, basically, he gets away with it. There, obviously, there's been no indictment of Donald Trump. And there, if there's no article of impeachment, he gets skates scot-free. On the other hand, the flip side is, if you start including that, now you're going down a whole other avenue here. And how much of it do you have to bring in? And I'll tell you what I think they might do is they might very narrowly tailor it and just have one article of impeachment for obstruction of justice relating to the Mueller investigation. Then you base it on basically McGahn, maybe the Mueller Well, I mean, Mueller Mueller's, t- Mueller's yeah. 10 points. Yeah, exactly. You just put volume two of Mueller's or the whole both of Mueller's volumes in front of the Senate and say, we incorporate this by reference. And I think symbolically, I- I'm torn here. As an American citizen... I would like to see them include Mueller because I think there's an important symbolic and historic statement that they need to make that this is not okay. This kind of obstruction will get you impeached if you're the president. Tactically, though, if I was just head coaching them or if I was in that war room with them, I would say, leave it, guys. Like, we just don't need it. But how important is creating or demonstrating a pattern of behavior? That's a good point. I mean, that's an argument in favor tactically of right. keeping it in, right? Because you can say it's not like he had a bad day or he didn't know what he was doing. I mean, he was explicitly like, if nothing else, the whole Mueller investigation is like getting a warning from a cop, right? When you get pulled over, you go, okay, whew, I dodged that one. Now I know there's cops on this street. I can't speed on this street. Right. And using that analogy, instead of going from 75 to 50, he went to 90. The next day. The next day. <laughs> right. I mean, the July 25th call, he's emboldened. It's the, the Donald Trumpiest part of this case. He gets this warning shot from Mueller. And then he just, the next day he goes, great. Now, now I, I've been cleared. I'm going to do it even more. So there's not a lot of experience to draw on here, but just give us your best guess. What does a Senate trial look like? Yeah, it's a great question. Obviously, Joe, you lived through the the 99 trial. I think they're going to look to do this in a streamlined fashion. I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm naive, but I'm hopeful that both parties can come together and say, we don't need a prolonged, mega dramatic trial. We know what the facts are. We basically just had over the last couple of weeks, those witnesses are going to be the bulk of the case, plus the transcript. Don't forget the transcript. Yeah. But I don't think we're going to see live witnesses in the well of the Senate. Um, as, well, we did, as we did we, not. We did Clinton. not in 1999. Yep, right. They had the videotape deposition of Monica yeah. Lewinsky and Vernon Jordan and a third person. I'm blanking who it was. So I don't think we're going to see live witnesses in the well of the Senate. I think we're going to see summaries done of their testimony, perhaps even video snippets played of what we just saw from them in the House. And I think we're going to hear a lot of argument 
from the House managers, whoever they may end up being, and, and the president's team and, and the Senate. But I think it's going to be a fairly summary proceeding. I do not think Mitch McConnell will just dismiss it or refuse to hold a trial. He's made clear he, he doesn't believe he can get away with that, or he doesn't believe that's the right thing to do, I should say more, more fairly to him. I think we're going to see it's going to be primarily summary and argument is my best guess. And it's not going to look like a few good men with dynamic cross-examinations and witnesses and even even the drama that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. I don't think we're going to see that level of sort of live drama. Now, the whole thing is inherently going to be hugely dramatic because we're having an impeachment trial for the president of the United States in the well of the U.S. Senate with Chief Justice John Roberts presiding. So it's going to be quite a spectacle. Joe, this is maybe more of a question for you, but Ellie, definitely weigh in here. Would it not be politically beneficial for the Senate to kind of have a bit of a drawn out process here that takes the campaigners off the trail and have to focus on something else and kind of quiets Biden or at least distracts him a little bit going into the primaries? You saw Richard Burr, who's the chairman of the Intel Committee in the Senate, suggesting that it be a six to eight week process. I, I think that was a an idle threat, and for obvious reasons, which is there are several sitting U.S. senators who are running for president. Here's why I think it's idle, for two reasons. Uh, after we get through the Iowa caucuses, we're going to have several less U.S. senators running for president who will not make it to New Hampshire and certainly won't make it out of New Hampshire. So that's one. Second, Mitch McConnell has a Senate with at least six vulnerable senators who need to be home campaigning themselves, and also particularly Maine, Colorado, uh, North Carolina, uh, states that are becoming slowly more blue, but certainly purple states now, where a six to eight week trial, it doesn't help his senators. And my last point would be is Mitch McConnell's at about 19% approval rating in Kentucky. Wow. He's running against Amy McGrath, who's a you know Iraq war veteran fighter pilot. He doesn't need it either. So I, I think that was Richard Burr trying to scare some Democrats. I expect it will be a much shorter, streamlined process. And, and from a practical point of view, I can't even imagine how they would fill up six to eight weeks. I mean, what we just saw was two weeks. Is there four to six more weeks beyond that? And we're not going to see full rehash of testimony. So I don't know what the heck they would do for six to eight yeah, weeks. Yeah, I think one of the points of contention uh, will be and I can imagine the Republicans lobbying their Senate colleagues heavily on this, is let's use the trial to bring in the witnesses the Democrats wouldn't let us. And let's bring in um, Hunter Biden and let's bring in his business partner and some Ukrainians. I think that's possible. I think the counterweight to that, though, is I guarantee you if that happens – the new oversight chairman, which may or may not be Carolyn Maloney, will subpoena Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, and Don Trump Jr. to come talk about their business dealings and using their father. So I think there's mutually assured destruction there. <laughs> and I'm not sure Lindsey Graham's going to go through with a hearing. Yeah, I also think it would be self-defeating, even putting aside that possibility, which is fascinating. Kind of want to see it, <laughs> I must say. But uh, the, the whole Ivanka, Jared thing. But I think the Republicans in the Senate would run a risk by turning this into a complete circus with Hunter Biden and trying to subpoena the whistleblower and all these people in that. I think one of the benefits for the Republicans of coming through this, I think that the favorite odds are right now, which is that he gets impeached but then acquitted by the Senate, is you get to play the victim a little bit. You get to say, 
the Democrats held up democracy and they, they weren't focused on the issues that affect you, the middle class, because they were busy wasting time with this impeachment that ultimately ended up being completely partisan. But if you turn it into a circus, then if you are marching in Hunter Biden to give irrelevant testimony and you are marching in and all these people who, who are part of wild conspiracy theories, then you create the circus. And, and I think it takes away your ability to sort of play the just focused on business slash victim of impeachment. What about the fact that, and this again for both of you, but the politics of it, Joe, what about the fact that there were high hopes here that Republicans would be moved and that wouldn't just be the Democrats that were allegedly or or trying to uphold certain Democratic norms, but none moved? Yeah, well, you know, we haven't had the vote yet, but Katie, I think you're right that none will move. I mean, I think we we got a very clear signal from Will Hurd last week that he's someone who's retiring. And he's someone who has, he's not a moderate by any stretch of the imagination, but he's a reasonable guy that I think uh, Democrats had some hopes that he would defect and maybe start a little bit of a domino. There's a couple of things that have happened in the last couple of weeks that indicate where the Republican Party are. Will Hurd is one of them. Nikki Haley's the other. These are people who have ambitions to go on to higher office. Nikki Haley, the presidency. Will Hurd, maybe the governor of Texas, you know, maybe the Senate, or maybe run for president in 2024. And they have made very careful calculations about how to thread the needle as people who were never Trumpers and are now Trumpers. And that calculation is you can be skeptical at times of the president, but you have to be supportive of this president because he controls the party. And he controls the largest voting block of Republicans. Many of them are evangelical Christians, non-college educated whites, white men, people who feel left behind by the changes in our economy and in the world and who have practiced grievance politics, that you're nowhere without them. And Trump holds the key for the near future for them. Can I ask you a question as well? Yeah, you can. I have, I have a political question for Joe because I love to pick Joe's brain about this kind of thing. So not to be too horse racy about it, but I will. Which of the Democratic candidates do you think have been most helped and most hurt by this whole impeachment inquiry so far? Who do you think is going to come out better for it and worse for it? And I'm interested where Biden falls on that. Well, I'll start with Biden. I think Biden's been helped the most because while he has not set the campaign trail on fire, he still is the consensus choice among Democrats as the person most likely to beat Donald Trump. And all of this stuff has just taken an enraged Democratic Party and made them hmm. nuclear, you know, <laughs> uh, in their hatred for the president. And it's it's created a, a space for I don't care who the nominee is. I just want the best person to beat Trump. And I think Biden is in that category. I think if Biden is one, one A is Pete Buttigieg, because mm. I think he people look at him as someone who is young, has generational appeal, and is just smart and could just take it to Trump, just outsmarting him. People who I think it hurts the most are the most progressive, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Notwithstanding, I think Elizabeth Warren having probably the best attack on Trump at the debate. But I think their problem is that there are real questions among the Democratic Party about whether they can beat Trump, whether they are too 
out there to be elected, and it's through no fault of their own. They're out there articulating their positions that have a lot of support in the party, but not the majority of the party. So I think those those candidates are hurt the most. And then the third category is everybody else. All of them are hurt because they have trouble getting attention. I always remind people that in 2004, at this point, John Kerry was in last place in Iowa. But he had his last six weeks, he was hitting on all cylinders. This could go through January, and no one's paying that much attention. So I do think Biden and Buttigieg are the beneficiaries. The one caveat to this is the Senate trial will give a couple of senators a moment to shine. Kamala Harris, the peak of her campaign was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. So we don't know what's going to happen, but I think it just magnifies electability as the most important issue for Democrats. I want to finish. It's Thanksgiving week. Give me your prediction for the craziest thing that might come out between (laughs) now and the end of the year. Okay. Do I have a license to speculate here? I am not only giving you a license, (laughs) I'm going to give you a bonus if you speculate. File this under wild speculation. I wonder if John Bolton might have taped Donald Trump. And here's why. We know that John Bolton had at least one one-on-one with Donald Trump about foreign aid to Ukraine. John Bolton's main role in this whole scheme is he threw the flag. He said, no way, this is not okay. And he told Talk that, to the lawyers. Talk, Talk to, the to, lawyers. to the lawyers. He's such a he's such an inside the beltway string puller, right? He sends a report up to the NSC. He's sending everybody to report it, to make a record. So we know he's a manipulator and operator. We know that he saw what was going on and was not okay with it. We know he had a one-on-one with Donald Trump trying to convince Trump to release the foreign aid. And we know we don't know what was said in that room, but we know he came out. And Morrison said that what Bolton said was, he's not ready yet. We also know Bolton's savvy. He's a lawyer. It's not illegal to tape the president. Others have felt necessary to tape the president, including not that they're paragons of virtue, but Michael Cohen, I think Omarosa. The point is, even shady people know I need to guard my back when I talk to this guy. And I think Bolton, it doesn't stretch the imagination too much to see that Bolton would say, I'm about to have a really important conversation with Donald Trump that I don't want mischaracterized. So we should brand this. Wild speculation of the week. Could John Bolton have taped Donald Trump? Well, let's just hope if he has the tape, there isn't an 18-minute gap. (laughs) Right. Oh, my God. (laughs) Ellie, thank you so much. We um, always appreciate your wisdom and understand a lot more about what's going on when you come in and talk to us. Thank you for having me. Always love being with you guys. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 